Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Many filmmakers have had successful careers with documentaries devoted to actors, directors, and other Hollywood luminaries. Two of the most popular, though, are Joan Kramer and David Healy, producers of many television specials. The two reminisce about their work in a new book, In the Company of Legends. The book will be published in April of 2015 by Beaufort Books. In my interview with them, Joan and David talk about their experiences, including stories of working with many famous Hollywood personalities. I'm happy to introduce Joan Kramer and David Healy. Welcome, Joan and David. Thanks for talking to me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting us. I speak to many authors, authors excuse me, about their film books, but I don't usually get a chance to talk to filmmakers who actually worked regularly with so many well-known stars. Um, but before we get into the book and the documentaries, let's talk about your backgrounds. What led you into film in the first place, and how did you each get to a point in your career to make these documentaries? Let's go ladies first and ask Joan. Uh, I was born in Chicago, and I was a ballet dancer. I always wanted to be a ballet dancer. And then I segued into television, um, and I wound up working for the Dick Cavett Show and booking talent. And I loved that job. And eventually, when the show went off the air, I did a few um, live from Lincoln Center intermission segments as a writer, and then got a job thanks to Robert McNeil, of the, McNeil, the formerly of the McNeil-Lera Report, mm-hmm. told me there's going to be an art series beginning at public television, WNET New York, and he thought I'd be a good candidate to work on it. And he passed along my resume to the the new executive producer of that series, and I was hired and assigned to work with David because I was hired as an associate producer. So that's how I come to be working with David, and we began to do profiles for that series called Skyline, which was only a New York, New Jersey, Connecticut local series, which lasted three seasons. And that's how I come to do profiles with David. Yeah, it sounds like from reading the descriptions that public television has been very good to you. Very good. What about you, David? How did you get to meeting Joan? Well, well we have very different backgrounds. Uh, I was, uh, I'm from the north of England. I was born in Yorkshire. Um, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship uh, and went to, went to Oxford, and I got a degree in physics there, of all things. <laughs> and uh, from that, I went straight from Oxford to, to a job with the BBC. I was very lucky. As a kid, I was fascinated by television, never dreamt I could get a career in it. And um, as, as so often happens in one's life, act, one accident leads to another, and uh, I happened to run into the head engineer of uh, the big commercial television station in London when I was at Oxford. He offered me what was uh, the equivalent of a summer internship. Uh, and then when I finished, when I got my degree, I went not to that company, but to the BBC that offered me a job in the engineering department because of my physics degree. Um, after a couple of years doing that and actually getting promoted deeper into, into engineering, I realized I was going the wrong way and I really wanted to be in production. Um, but there's quite a large uh, invisible barrier between engineering and production, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. I managed to leap over it simply because the BBC was starting a second television channel, BBC Two, and one of its departments was it was uh, last minute seeking a lot of uh, new people to help run the second network, and that's how I managed to leap into production. Um, I eventually became a staff director. I worked a total of eight years at the BBC. And then in 1969, made a huge uh, life-changing decision (laughs) when I decided to move to New York. Uh, There was no job here. 
but I wanted to keep working in television, and I eventually landed a job at what was then WNDT, Channel 13, and eventually became WNET, uh, the public television station, where I got a job as an associate director, climbed the ladder, became a director, and eventually a producer, and, um, and I was working on the Skyline series that Joan mentioned, uh, when when Joan came to uh, Channel 13, and we started doing shows together, and we did a number of profiles there. Uh, some, uh, uh, needless to say, doing a, a series on the arts in New York City was a gift. Mm-hmm. There was an abundance of things to do. Um, we, there should have been two or three series on the arts in New York City, but it was a gold mine, and we had a great time. We had some rough times. We had some great times, uh, as you'd imagine, in production. And the show that was the catalyst to our moving on was uh, one we did about Rudolf Nureyev. Joan booked him because she had originally booked him when she worked on the ABC The Cabot Show, so she knew how to get to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, she booked him because he was in New York to do uh, some ballets with the Joffrey Ballet Company, uh, reconstructions of works by Nijinsky. Excuse me, David. I knew Nureyev from my world of dance before I booked him on the Cabot Show, which is how I was willing, able to book him but, on the But Cabot you hadn't show. met him before the Cabot Show, had you? Yes, I had. Oh, you had? Oh, I didn't realize that. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Yes, I had. And, anyway, why don't you tell, them, tell about the show we did and how it led to our next step? Well, Nureyev said to me, you know, I've always been crazy about Fred Astaire. And I said, really? You know, I didn't realize at that time, even though I was a great fan of Fred Astaire, didn't realize how many other dancers in not necessarily film um, in the film medium were crazy about Fred Astaire, including Nureyev and uh, people like George Balanchine and other choreographers like Jerome Robbins. I mean, everybody is crazy. Everybody was insane about Fred Astaire. They thought he was the most inventive, um, brilliant dancer. And Nureyev said to me, is there any way you could get me to meet Fred Astaire? I've never met him. And the idea uh, popped up that Joanne Woodward, who was a friend of mine at that point, could possibly host a talk show, a special, in which she would speak to both Astaire and Nureyev because Joanne herself was taking ballet classes every single day. So it would be two different forms of dancers, so to speak, and the person who's not really a professional dancer but loves dance talking to them. Mm-hmm. Well, Astaire turned it down, and Nureyev loved the idea and said yes. And it evolved from there, because we couldn't do the talk show uh, idea, it evolved into becoming two shows that were profiles of Fred Astaire that Joanne narrated and Nureyev ap- appears on. We went to Paris and filmed him. The and that was our stepping stone into national television. Those were the first national specials we did about a, a major movie star. And we thought it was going to be that. That was going to be a one-off. But uh, it led to more things, as you know. <laughs> but so obviously you've had a long career together and separately, too, for that matter. You each, each probably could write about your separate careers as well. But why did you decide that this was the perfect time to write a memoir of your experiences? <laughs> you know, the, the, go on, go on, John. well, first of all, in in many ways, you're giving us more credit for the timing of this book than we deserve. Okay, um, we throughout the years have told stories of working with some of the people we worked with to our friends and family, and everybody we thought was being polite and said, "Oh, you've got to write it down. You've got to write a book." And David and I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. So and we were, every, we were very busy. Let's be honest, we were very busy making very shows. Very busy, yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, we've discovered that writing this book is a completely different discipline than writing a script for a television show. I mean, it's very different. But anyway, um, so every so often through the years, we would write down a story just not to forget it. And so we had, as a friend of mine used to say, a a collection of higgledy-piggledy stories. Nothing went together. There was no form to them. We didn't really pay too much attention to the writing style. And then... um, Exactly, we were tired that we realized maybe we should have a go at this. 
So and we, we started putting it lit- together. Yes, we got a literary agent. We were introduced to our literary agent, and he shopped this book to every major publisher that turned it down. <laughs> We've got the nicest rejection letters, though, Joe. <laughs> well, I would hope so. If they're publishers, they should oh, be able to write. beautifully written. What great stories. Fascinating people you met, but just not for us. <laughs> no, what, yeah, what they actually said for the most part is, if we were the people that we're writing about, writing this book, they'd grab it, but we were unknown authors, even though we were known for being, you know, well-known producers mm-hmm. of television programs. Well, anyway, it, it turned out that he found this publisher named Beaufort Books, and they grabbed it. And then we had to really then write we had the to book. really write the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's when the hard work started. <laughs> And as Joe said, it's a very different discipline because uh, when you're writing scripts for television, as we've done a great number, uh, you're trying to concentrate a large number of facts into a very small space of time. If you have an hour to tell somebody's life story and uh, only part of that is narration time, it really is the art of compression, telling as much as you can without it feeling compressed and getting the story into that narrow space of time you have. When you're writing a book, as you know, Joel, you can let things breathe. And so we had to really adapt to that and change our style. The other thing is that I've always said after writing this book, when you tell a story to somebody, you have the luxury of the inflection of your voice. You have the And the reaction of the other person. <laughs> and the reaction and laughing and humming and hawing and, and, um, and maybe even repeating yourself. You don't have that luxury in a book. You have to make the story come across with either humor or, um, or, or pathos, whatever you want it to, to, um, to be, but it has to, have the, it has to reflect the tone that you want that you have the ability to do with your voice. You don't have that here. As you can tell, Joe, we're not great writers, but I think we, I think we have some pretty good stories to tell. Well, being a writer is being a storyteller. Even in nonfiction, you still have to tell a story, as, as Joan yeah, just pointed course, out. Of course. The it's sort of like the, the essence. <laughs> it's sort of like the difference between a, a, a live performance, say, on Broadway or in the theater versus a film. You don't know what the audience is going to do or react or how they're going to react because they're not there. You can only go by what you think will work, and that's the best you can do. Well, we've enjoyed getting the book, and we, we hope people enjoy reading it. What was the really, you want to know the really hardest part of the book? The hardest part of the book was picking the pictures. <laughs> we had an abundance. <laughs> we, David and I walked around with campers everywhere and at all times, and so all, most of the pictures in the book are ours uh, from our personal collection. Well, my living room looked like jumping hurdles. In order for, to get from my living room to any other room in my apartment, I had to jump over scrapbooks that I kept because they were all over the place trying to figure out what pictures we should pull out of them. You, of course, you both worked in a, or work in a visual medium, so it's not a surprise that pictures would also be important to what you were doing. Yeah. There was a temptation to over-illustrate because, of course, when you're working in television, it's all about illustrating, and we had to discipline ourselves in the book not to try to illustrate every paragraph <laughs> And David, being a director, kept saying to me, Joan, the audience does not know that that picture is not going to be in the book. We have to, we have to, we have to censor ourselves. Not censor, but right. you know, discipline ourselves not to use everything we love. Well, of course, that's we what use- the Internet is for these days. You can put everything <laughs> up if you want. You don't even have to edit. But, okay, the book is scheduled for release on April 16th of 2015, but you also have a great television special coming up on Turner Classic Movies this Tuesday, April 7th. Unfortunately, since our interviews could be listened to at different times by people because they have the ability to download them whenever they want, some people may not listen to this in time for the special, but we want to talk about it because it's, it is really a great um, concept that, of course, Turner Classic Movies is really greatly known for. So... David, why don't you start to talk about this event, and we'll see Joan's point of view as well. Well, we're, we're very lucky. We we have we 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 adore Turner Classic Movies for obvious reasons, and we've made a number of shows for Turner Classic Movies, and uh, before Turner Classic Movies existed for TNT, which was doing shows like that, and um, and also because uh, TCM is part of Warner Brothers. They actually uh, own the rights to a number of the shows that we did earlier for public television. So they have a library of our shows. 
Um, we were thrilled when they they suggested doing an evening of our programs. It was uh, uh, it's it's stunning <laughs> for us, and uh, we also had the opportunity to sit down with Robert Osborne and uh, co-host the evening with him. We recorded that a couple of weeks ago, and um, that's what it will be on uh, on Tuesday night, the um, the seventh, you know, the seventh. Right. Um, the the there are. Is it five shows? Yeah, it's five. I've got the names in front of me. I was going to mention yes, the names yes, in a thank bit. Yes, thank you. Um, and it, it's, it spans a, quite, a, quite a range for us. So we're, we're very happy with the choice of what they put on there. I don't know what, uh, should we go into some more detail? Joan, do you have any thoughts? Well, first of all, they've done us a huge favor because they did it so that they could promote the book. That was their main goal. And, I mean, we were just blown away by that kind of support. We knew we had friends at TCM, but we didn't realize how supportive of us they actually are. It, I mean, it's it's really quite is, thrilling. It really is quite thrilling and very, very kind of them. And then to add icing to the cake, they, cake, they asked us to come and, as, as I said, co-host. And so we got to tell a few stories. We're doing intros and outros to the first four of the five shows. The fifth show, Robert Osborne will just say, stay tuned, there's a call on Bogart coming up after the break, you know, after this, after a message or a break or whatever, but we're not introing and outroing the call on Bogart because it's on at something like one o'clock in the morning, and they don't do that. But the first four we're doing. No, TCM is a jewel. It's a national treasure. I think it really is. It's wonderful. And Robert has been Robert has been so supportive and wonderful. He wrote a blurb for the book. Have you seen that? Yes, so, I did. I mean, he's really been terrific. So the five films, and I wanted to start talking a little bit about some of them, and we obviously can't spend a lot of time on all of them because, frankly, we could talk about each one for an hour. But um, we probably could. <laughs> you press the button, we tell you a story. <laughs> <laughs> there are five of them, and they're from the late 80s and early 90s. Um, the first is James Stewart, A Wonderful Life, which, uh, based on my information, was filmed in or was created in 1987. Then you've got the Spencer Tracy legacy, a tribute by Catherine Hepburn, which was in 86. Fonda on Fonda from 92. Catherine Hepburn, All About Me from 93. And then the last, as you already mentioned, Joan, Bacall on Bogart, which was filmed or created in 1988. Um, let's talk a little bit, though, about this, the Spencer Tracy legacy, a tribute by Catherine Hepburn. I'm coming to this one because it's the first, if you look at the dates, but also because I think it um, really showed how you were able to pull together information from um, to put together such a great special. Uh, David, how did this project come about? Well, it was it it it, it was it, we'd actually done a number by this time, um, and of course the key the key here was Catherine Hepburn. We we'd done a show about her in 1981, wasn't it, John? Yes, yes 81. It went on the air. Um, called Catherine Hepburn, um, uh, starring Catherine Hepburn, it was called. It went on uh, public television. And uh, it was a show that she gave her approval for us to do, but didn't appear on. She was actually touring with West Side Waltz, and she said, I'm much too busy, you can't do it. But she gave, she gave us permission to do it. As a result of doing that, we gained her confidence. Uh, when she returned from her tour, she said, uh, friends and family say it's terrific. I haven't seen it myself. Come to tea. <laughs> Well, we discovered she had seen it herself, but she never admitted it. So that was when we first met her. And it was not very long after that that Joan received a phone call. Why don't you tell us about that, Joan? The phone rang, and I picked it up one morning at my office at public television. And I hear, um, hello, Joan, it's Catherine Hepburn. Now that I have, well, you know, first of all, when you pick up a phone, when you call her, it's one thing. When you pick up a phone and hear that voice on the other end, and you don't expect it, it's a little surprising, to say the least. And I remember saying something mundane like, oh, how are you this morning, just to tune in. You know, I mean, I had, I had to pull myself together, a phrase that she used to use all the time, pull yourself together. But anyway, so after she didn't answer me as to how she was, she said, now that I have friends at public television, why don't we do a show together about Spencer? Well, it's the last thing I ever expected to hear from her because she never had agreed previously to talk to any interviewers, print or otherwise, about her 
about Spencer Tracy. And so I don't know where I got the guts to say to her, Ms. Hepburn, I've got somebody on my other line. Could I just put you on hold for one second and get, tell them I'll call them back? And she said, sure. So I put her on hold and I screamed to the office across the hall where David was, David, get in here. And he came in very calmly and he said, what's the problem? And I said, Catherine Hepburn is on my phone and she's just asked us to do a show about Spencer Tracy. And very calmly, David said, ask her if she'll host it. So I, without even thinking or getting nervous, I pushed the button and picked up the line again. And I said, Miss Hepburn, I'm back. Um, could I ask you if you would be willing to host a show about Spencer Tracy? What the hell do you think I'm talking about? <laughs> of course I should host it. Come to lunch. That's how it all started. It took, us an, it took us a number of years to get it together. But because she was the person pushing it and she... Uh, she was giving it her authority, as it were. Um, we had no trouble getting guests. In fact, of all the shows that we've done, we were probably overbooked for people who wanted to appear on that show. And uh, she, who, she, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, David. Sorry. And she, 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 be, she even booked some people for us, people we were having trouble with and the trouble getting. And she, she also managed to uh, uh, clear the way for us getting clips. Getting, as you probably know, you can't just show excerpts from movies. Mm-hmm. These are all owned, and you have to negotiate with the uh, with the uh, distributor. And in this case, it was a lot of the films were owned by MGM, and MGM was was still being very protective of their films, of the that's entertainment films, where the, which were full of excerpts, as you know. So they didn't want to destroy that franchise by letting other people use their clips. So MGM was being very difficult, but she got in there. She got the clips for us. <laughs> And, John, I'm um, sorry I interrupted you. No, that's okay. And she um, she was very... Um, there were a couple people on that program that she had known very well but had not talked to in many years for complicated reasons. And we decided that we'd better ask her how she felt she'd had, about it. She'd had fallings out with them is the point. Uh, yeah. she, she had decided to cut them out of her life. If, if you did the wrong, Catherine Hepburn was wonderful. She, she, was very, she was very trusting and she was very loyal. But if you betrayed that trust, then the door slammed shut. And she felt a couple of people had done that to her. So. But we realized that those people had been important in Spencer Tracy's and her careers. And so we took the bull by the horn and said, um, how would you feel? How should we deal with Joseph L. Mankiewicz, the producer. And she said, you've got to go after Joe. You have to have him. He was important. He wrote, he was, he produced many of uh, Spencer's and my films, and they, they were good friends. You must. Even though she hadn't talked to him in a long time. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing happened with Garson Kanan, who betrayed her trust by writing a book called Tracy and Hepburn, having taken notes every time they went on vacation or out to dinner together. She was furious. That was the end of Garson Kanan's friendship. But she said to us, you've got to get Garson. You've got to ask Garson. So in other words, she put aside personal feelings in, in, to benefit the story being told as accurately and fully as possible to make the full picture of Spencer Tracy. David, what was it like having to direct her in the show? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, Joe, you're wonderful. <laughs> you can you can imagine the the night before the first day I was going to really direct her. We I'd shot an interview with her, but that's not directing it. Right. But the first time we were dealing with scripted material for the show uh, was out in Los Angeles, and I thought I wasn't going to sleep at all the night before. Uh, our first shot was on the golf course, the the Riviera Country Club. Early in the morning, she said, we've got to get out there before they start because we could get killed by those golf balls. We have to finish early. <laughs> you know, she was a she great was... golfer, so she knew her golf. <laughs> so uh, we were out at the crack of, well, I would say the crack of dawn. I think dawn, dawn was, the dawn was just breaking when we were setting up out there. And uh, what I didn't realize was that she was as nervous as I was. You have to remember that in her entire career, this is something she'd never done before. She'd never hosted a show. Mm-hmm. 
And I remember when we were we were meeting in uh, her apartment in New York, her house in New York, and discussing it. And I said to Miss Hepburn, um, "Don't worry about the script. You won't have to memorize anything. There'll be a prompter on the camera. You, you look straight into the red lens, and you'll you'll be able to read the script." I said, "Do you have any problem? Any problems with eyesight?" She said, "No, no, no. I'm falling apart, but I can see perfectly well. Don't worry about that." And then she said, "But." But, but why don't you just stand next to the camera and I'll talk to you? Hmm. And I thought to myself, no, no, I've got to really hold my ground here. Uh, I said, no, Miss Hepburn, you're hosting the show. You have to talk to the viewer. You'll have to look into the lens of the camera. Hmm, she said. <laughs> I discovered later what that hmm. <laughs> uh, what we have to remember is that in her entire career, she'd been told never to look into a camera lens. That's a big no-no, as you know, as a dramatic actor. And um, she'd never read a prompter. She'd never hosted a show before. So she was nervous. I didn't realize this. I uh, didn't realize this because I was so busy being nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but as a result of that, she actually started giving the crew a hard time that first morning. And it, well, it was all about a radio mic. There's a story that's in the book. I won't bore you with it now because it, it's almost, it didn't matter what it was. She chose something to, to give, to give trouble about. So we settled that problem. And I got her in front of the camera and I said, let's just run through the prompt to make sure you can read it here. So I told the prompt to guy to run. Can't see a word, she said. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, why, let, well, okay, take a few steps forward. I couldn't move the camera because I was trying to line up a shot to, to not quite match, but to be very similar to one in Pat and Mike, that was the film we were talking about. Right. She took a couple of paces forward. I said, okay, let's try it again. Roll the prompter, I said to the prompter. Again. Still can't see a thing. This is no good. It won't work. I'm thinking, oh, God, what do we do? <laughs> she can't read the script. It's early morning. It's our first piece to camera. And I had to come up with, with a solution. And, um, of course, the solution was obvious, although I thought I was being quite brilliant at the time. Uh, <laughs> I said to her, oh, Miss Hepburn, I didn't say look, of course. I said, Miss Hepburn, I don't think we need a script here. You know the story. We, we went through it yesterday when we were going through the script. You're just having to say that you and Spence made a film about, uh, about the film Pat and Mike, and part of it was shot here at the Riviera Country Club, and just describe the two roles you, you played, and then lead us, it'll lead us into the clip. And that's, that's what we did. I, I basically scrapped the prompter and, um, and we did a run through and she nailed it. And then we did a couple of takes and she was great. And then she realized she could do it. And from that point on, she was absolutely wonderful. She was marvelous with the crew, very, very caring about other people. And her, whenever she had a suggestion, it was a damn good one. I realized when you're working with Catherine Hepburn, if she has some ideas, you better listen because they're usually damn good. <laughs> and awesome. she just added little bits all the way along. It was, it was such a pleasure. After that little hump the first thing in the morning, it was a pleasure because when we both got over our nervousness and when, from that point on, it was, it was a dream. And she also, she was so aware. If she saw me say something to David quietly or a member of the crew say something to David quietly, What's wrong? If something's wrong, tell me, let's do it again. It, it sounds like her nerves, I mean, as you pointed out, this was something brand new to her. She'd never done it before. I didn't, re I didn't realize until afterwards, uh, Joe. It struck me later that I wasn't the only person nervous there. Right. We were asking her to do something very new, and she had to learn how to do it. And once she learned how to do it, it was great. Well, I think we get into the, you, you, you only know famous people, and we'll use that term here, from what you see of them in public, either on a yes. film or in theater or whatever, so you don't really know what they're like. We really don't know what people are like, and I know from many, many biographies that people tend to be as nervous as the rest of us, and in this particular case, even more so since it was her idea. She was probably worried that, okay, this was my idea. What happens if this fails? And so yes, it wouldn't surprise me that that was part of what was going on there. I'm sure you're right. She was actually carrying a, a, a huge burden on her shoulders. Well, that's good. Did she stick reasonably close to what you had written with what she was saying? Did she? I assume since she wasn't reading it word for word anymore and she was more or less doing it live, so to speak. 
what would happen is that before we did any particular piece, we'd just go through the points she had to make. Yes, and she was very close. Now, at that point in the shooting, we didn't have to be exactly to time uh, because we, we were going to take, we had to be close. You know, if, we'd allow, if we'd basically allowed maybe you know, 45 seconds here, if she ran 40 seconds or 50 seconds or even a minute, it didn't bother me at right. that point because we hadn't come to the point where we were really fine-tuning the show. It was only later, when she did some, some pieces later in New York to camera, that we had to be absolutely spot on time. Uh, interestingly enough, I, we were having our, our final script conference with her. For the pieces we had to do, after we'd done our rough edit, and we had to insert some extra scripted material with her. And I said, no, Ms. Hedlund, this, you know, this is different from Los Angeles. These actually have to be to time. This, this sequence, for example, an example has to be 25 seconds. This has to be 52 seconds. And she said to me, what was that thing you had on the camera when we were out in Los Angeles? <laughs> and I realized oh, she, she was talking. Said, I think she said, what was that contraption you wanted? Oh, the to contraption. Use? Yes, that was, what was the <laughs> contraption? And I realized she was talking about the prompter and she, she obviously was ready to try using the prompter. Uh, and we did the final pieces with the prompter on, so we could do them at a time, and they were word perfect. And uh, interestingly enough, I was again, I, w I was worried because many people don't know how to use a prompter. I'm sure you've seen television programs where people people are locked onto the prompter like it's a lifeline. You can see the eyes scanning. <laughs> they don't take their eyes off the prompter. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I wonder how she's going to manage this. I had a few things up my sleeve to tell her if it wasn't going to work. I didn't have to say a word to her. She knew instinctively that she had to occasionally look as the way as though gathering her thoughts. She had enough confidence to be able to do that. There's no way you can, t if you look at that show, I, I challenge you to tell which pieces she was doing with a prompter and which she was doing without a prompter. She knew exactly what to do. She took to it like a fish to water. Well, it's probably another role to her. So. You know, I, we also realized afterwards, Joe, that the prompter was the one outstanding thing from California that she still wanted to master. She was known throughout her life to challenge herself, to make herself do things that she didn't want to do and that, she, that made her slightly uneasy. And she didn't master the prompter in California, she got to, so she wanted to master it in New York. Of course, in 93, you came back to her. This time, uh, Catherine Hepburn, All About Me. Joan, how did that project come about, given that you'd already worked with her once before, but the other time was about Spencer Tracy? Well, first of all, after the Tracy show, she became almost a repertory player for us. She was on the Jimmy Stewart show after that and the Bogart show after that and the Fonda show after that, and our show about the group theater. She did interviews for those shows, mm -hmm. okay? So when we did the Fonda on Fonda program, the day after Jane Fonda's narration session in California, we'd been invited by, um, um, by our friend, who you may know the name of, whose name was Roger Mayer, who just passed away, unfortunately. He was the head of Turner Entertainment Company, and the library of films. And he and, his, he and his wife were friends of ours, and he said to us um, in New York, bring formal clothing with you because the day after your narration session, UCLA is going to honor Ted Turner, to whom Jane was then engaged, not yet married. Mm -hmm. Yes, that, that's the scene setter. This was <laughs> the time yeah. before they were married, they'd been engaged, and... Uh, and in a way, doing the show about Henry Fonda was one of Ted's gifts to, to Jane. Jane, so, yeah. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. That's okay. So the day after the narration session, we got all, in, we got all dressed up, and we went to this UCLA honor for Ted because Roger had thought, he said to us, you know, there's going to be so many people there. I think it would be nice for them to see familiar faces and we'll all be at the same table because Roger had bought the table and Ted and Jane were at the table and so were David and I and so were Roger and his wife. Well, we were in the lobby of the UCLA um, uh, um, campus, wherever it was. I can't remember where that was, David. Do you remember? I don't, re I don't remember. Anyway, there were hors d'oeuvres and drinks being served and 
as David used he likes to say, a commotion of photographers told us that Jane and Ted had arrived, and they spotted us through the crowd and made a beeline for us because, you know, the paparazzi was snapping away there. And Jane came up to us and gave us a hug, and David told her how pleased he was with the previous day's shoot and well as well as narration. And then she said, why don't you do a show? Why don't the two of you do a show about Catherine? And David said to her, you know, it's the first time we ever met you. We did one about her years ago, right after you and she made on Golden Pond. Uh, and she said, well, do another one and, and, and do it for us. And then she turned to Ted and said, darling, it could be for, for TNT, can't it? And he said, of course, darling. The fastest <laughs> commission we ever had. The next day, we heard from Ted's people saying, I understand you're doing a show about Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> well, then, then we had to go talk to Hepburn. Right. So David, uh, tell him, tell her we went. We went to the how. We asked. To we see asked. Her. We said, "Can we can we come over and talk to you about something?" She said, "Yes, yes, yes, come over when when you want to come." So we came, we went the next day, and we told her that uh, the TNT wanted a show about her with. Uh, with oh, let me just interject Jane. something. And Jane said, "And I'll host it." Yes. Ah, yes. And yes. So, yes. Yes. Okay, yes, that's yes. an important key here. Okay. So 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 Kate says. Why do you want to know this, do another show about music? Because I'm so fascinating. <laughs> Making fun of herself, right. of course. Uh, we said, yes, of course. She said, but, but I don't need Jane to host it. I, I'm here. I can do it myself. Well, that, of course, immediately set off alarm bells because Jane had offered to host the show. It was for TNT. How the hell were we going to tell TNT that Kate didn't want Jane as the host? Joe. Their boss's fiance, and she didn't want it that her as host. And we thought, oh God. <laughs> David, go on. Well, we 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 decided we had to deal with this rapidly, but the, we were not going to call the people at TNT because they would just freak out. So Joan said, "Let let me call Jane." Uh, uh, so jo Joan, you tell her the conversation you had. I with called Jane. Jane and I said, uh, "Jane, um, we just got through meeting with Kate." And um, she's agreed to do the show, but she'd like to host it herself. She'd like to be both the subject and host of her own show. She said, you have no idea how relieved I am. I'm here planning my wedding, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to fit in what all we would have to do for this show if I hosted it. That's a great idea. <laughs> so I said, well, but Jane, I think the people at TNT who, you know, who, have, had, who have done some of these programs always with a host, um, might be a little, you know, they might raise their eyebrows and not want to do something that's completely out of their formula. She said, don't worry about it. Kate can handle that. And then I said, and also, she thinks it should be longer than an hour, which were the length of all the TNT shows at the time, including the one about Jane's father. Mm -hmm. And Jane said, she's absolutely right. You cannot do justice to her career and her life in an hour. I said, well, that's going to raise another bunch of eyebrows at your husband, at, at Ted's uh, network. She said, tell, you, tell them that you've spoken to me, and I'll talk to Ted. It'll be fine. <laughs> and that's how it happened. And, of course, it became a unique show. Of all the shows we've done, it's the only one where there are no other people except the, the subject of the show. And it, it comes across like an autobiography. Uh, and it's a, it's a very special program in that respect. There's no doubt about it. Let's go back to, and I, I wanted to come to that one right away since it was Hepburn again, but let's go back a little bit and let's talk about the Jimmy Stewart documentary, James Stewart, A Wonderful Life. Once again, a true screen legend that you were able to talk to work with. I, I, I think you're leading to talking about the first time we actually met him. Right. Um, because we... It was a long process of getting to him to agree, right. <laughs> which we won't go into here. But uh, we finally went to his his home on Roxbury Drive. Uh, interestingly enough, so many celebrities lived on Roxbury Drive. There were no fences, no guards. Anybody could have walked in. It's not like that anymore, of course. And um, we we were waiting in the living room for him to uh, to come downstairs. Gloria, his wife, invited us to, to wait for him. And I heard somebody coming down the stairs and of course it was Jimmy Stewart but into the room walks this old bent man with very little wispy gray hair 
and looking just gray overall and so lacking in energy. And it was really rather upsetting to me because I said to Joan after we left, I don't, I don't see how this man can, can hold together a two-hour show. I don't think he's got the strength to do it. But we didn't have a plan B. So we just plowed ahead, uh, hoping things would work out. Here's what happened. The day we scheduled to interview him and Gloria, uh, we were setting up with the crew in their house, in the living room. And uh, we heard him coming down the stairs again. But this time he wore his toupee. This time he was made up. This time he was wearing his sports jacket and shirt. And into the room walked James Stewart, the movie star. This was not the same person we'd met a few weeks ago. A total transformation. It's the sort of thing, it's a a typical showbiz story. (laughs) When you're on, you're on, and the energy all comes from somewhere. And that energy was sustained throughout the entire shoot. We were working with somebody completely different from that man I first met. And David had the same experience. We had the same experience some six years earlier with his best friend, Henry Fonda. Right. David, yes. David, tell tell Joel that story. I mean, it was yeah. We were we were we were interviewing Henry Fonda for this first show we did about Catherine Hepburn that she didn't appear on, and they just done on Golden Pond together. And we were setting up outside his home in Bel Air, <clears throat> and a crew was setting up, and he comes out and starts uh, you know, to, just to say hello and, and chat. And I thought to myself, well, let me let me run the questions by him just to get his mind tuned in. To, uh, so, he, so he's not umming and erring on camera. And so I said, do, do you mind if I ask you some of the questions, um, Mr. Fon? He said, no, no, go ahead. Could you tell me the first time you met Catherine Hepburn? Eh, nothing much to say about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you first see her on film? Oh, I don't remember. You and she have a different acting style? I oh, well, eh, No, I don't think so. I went through all the questions that John and I had prepared, and he hadn't anything to say about any of them. So by that time, the crew was ready. I said, Mr. Fonda, take a seat in front of the camera. I think we're ready now. And um, I'm going to ask you the questions again. If you have nothing to say, that's fine. But anything pops into your head, you know, just, just let us know. So I started with, can you tell me about the first time you and um, Catherine had been met? Well, she walked up to me. And suddenly, <laughs> this man, <laughs> all the energy was there. He was telling us wonderful stories completely different from the person I'd spoken to as we were setting up. It's the same story again. Lights, camera, action, and the movie star appears. You wanted to save his performance for when you had the film going. Yes, exactly. Of course, Joan, <laughs> the narrator of, or excuse me, the host of the, of the documentary was Johnny Carson. Uh, that was he, he hosted the Jimmy Stewart one, yeah. Right. Oh, that's the Stewart show. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanted to come back. I was coming back to the Stewart one. He was famous in his own right. How did Johnny Carson come into the documentary? How, how was he brought into it? Well, because we had such a roller coaster experience with keeping the Stewart show uh, alive, you know, Stewart was con- committed, then he dropped out, then we got him back again. Usually David and I would sit and make lists of appropriate potential hosts, and it would take weeks, and we'd call around, and it took, would take weeks. Well... MGM was co-producing the uh, show with us because they were giving all the film clips for free in exchange for distribution rights in the program after the PBS broadcast window. And David and I were in Los Angeles and asked to come to a meeting at MGM, and David suddenly said to me... We were actually in a a car on the way to the meeting. I can't believe that happened. And David said to me, (laughs) you know, I... That's they're going to ask us about. <laughs> I think we better come up with a name or two. And that David suddenly said, "What about Johnny Carson? He's, Jimmy is so wonderful when he goes on Carson's show. I bet it could work for us." Well, we both said we both sort of snickered and said, "It's a great name to bring up, but Johnny Carson. He never did anything outside the Tonight Show except occasionally host the Oscar telecast." So we went to the meeting, and David brought up Johnny Carson, which was obviously, you know, oh, that would be fabulous. We didn't have Johnny Carson yet. (laughs) (laughs) 
So they so, said, yes, go after him. He'd be the perfect host. <laughs> he'd be perfect. So, so uh, John, Jim, Jimmy Stewart's press agent, John Strauss, by then had become a friend, helping to put the show back on track when Jimmy tried to back out. And John gave me the advice to call up a man named David Tebbett, who was a major talent force for the NBC network and was largely responsible for Johnny becoming the host of The Tonight Show back when Jack Parr left. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a letter. to. So I called David Tebbett, and he was perfectly lovely. And he said, write me a letter, and I'll give it to John. I'll hand it to Johnny. So we wrote a letter. He actually said, write a letter to Johnny and send it to me, and I'll give it to Johnny. So we did. And he called about three days later and said, "Um, don't tell him I told you this but he's going to do this program for you. He asked me to give you his home number, but let him tell you. I said, okay. So I called Johnny, and he he said, um, I said, David Tebbett just gave me your number um, and asked me to call. And he said, yes. He said, said, I'll be willing to do this program with you if you're sure it's okay with Jim. Mm. And I it was said, like that a lot. They were they, were they both worried about each other. They really cared about each other, those two. They really <laughs> did. They were good friends, and they cared about each other. It wasn't just on camera. And they didn't I want to put to each Johnny, other out at all. Yeah, so they I didn't said want to, Johnny, to do anything that was... I said to Johnny, trust me, he'll be thrilled. And, of course, he was. He kept telling me and Johnny and David, isn't it wonderful of John to be willing to do this? <laughs> And Johnny kept saying to us, if he tells me one more time how wonderful it is, I'm going to strangle him. Doesn't he realize that I'm really having a good time? Maybe he doesn't believe me. Okay, so he was having a good time, but did it start that way? Was he confident in his ability to, I mean, given that this was something different for him? He's not, you know, well, he well again, it's a bit like the Catherine Hedlund story. Johnny was doing something he hadn't done before. Right. Uh, he was used to doing live television, as you know, even though it was taped, it was taped as the right. live. Well, they did it live and sometimes, too. But they yes. did occasionally, yes. But the majority of his shows you know, were taped earlier in the day. But they were done to time. They, right. they didn't stop. If something went wrong, that was part of the show. And so he wasn't used to what was effectively movie-style shooting. One take at a time, waiting for the crew to set up, hanging out, having to do scripted pieces to camera. Of course, to Jimmy, this was all he'd done all his life. He no problem at all. But I was, I was a little bit concerned about Johnny, how he was going to adapt, how he was going to manage it. But uh, Jimmy was so supportive of him. You could, you could see Jimmy was egging, not egging him on, but giving him uh, encouragement every time. How did, how, that, was, that was great, John. That was really great. <laughs> and when, when Jimmy blew a line, he'd say, what did he say, John? What was his words? Well, when Johnny blew Sorry, a line? Johnny blew a line, you mean? You know when Johnny when blew Johnny, a line? He'd say... Want to cue Harvey? <laughs> the Invisible Rabbit. You know right. the Invisible Rabbit? Right. Harvey from the movie? Mm-hmm. He said, you want to cue Harvey here? <laughs> so again, it was, it was a matter of, of doing it a few times and getting used to it and getting used to hanging out, waiting for the next setup. Uh, but because they were, they, were, they were so comfortable with each other, it was, it was a, such a great day of shooting. We had the whole Universal backlot out at disposal. And um, uh, so we were working on, on the Western Street there. We were working in front of the, the Harvey House, which still existed. Um, and it was, it was just a joy to see them working together. And Johnny would come to us, up as, to us occasionally and say things like, uh, let's just do, it, uh, just do a little bit of time with Jimmy, just save his energy for him. You know, it, it was, it, it was a con- they were concerned about each other, a real friendship. It was very... Very moving working with them in some respects. And you know, we asked we asked Johnny after that show if he would do we named some other shows we wanted to do. And he said, Find me a subject that I care about as much as I care about Jimmy and I'll be happy to do another show for you. We never could find somebody that met that criteria that was still alive. Right. We asked him if we if we could do a show about Jack Benny. And we had permission from Jack's daughter to do it. But Johnny said to us, look, the reason it worked with me and Jimmy is that I had Jimmy to talk to. Right. If Jack were still alive, I'd 
I do it in a flash. But mm-hmm. I can't just uh, I can't just appear on television and talk. It's, I'm not good at that. Actually, he was, but he, didn't. <laughs> he was. <laughs> well, didn't he talk about uh, you know his own confidence in this? Didn't he talk about wanting to get somebody to replace him in the role in in the as the host? <laughs> yeah. it, it, that show was was constantly thinking you've got everything in the bag, and then the bag seems to develop a hole and somebody tries to wriggle out of it. <laughs> uh, yes. John, uh, having, having landed Johnny relatively easily through David Tebbett, as Joan described, uh, he said to us, when are you going to be in Los Angeles next? And we, we told him, he said, well, come come over to my house and let's talk about the show. His house was in point doom. And, uh, when we arrived there, he showed us around the house, which I think he just had built recently. And he was still building tennis courts uh, across the street, which he was very proud of. He was a real tennis aficionado, as you may know. And um, then he, we were back in the house, and he said, uh, come down to the den. We went downstairs. Which were, uh, and we noticed in the room there was a, a small um, effigy of Stan Laurel, wasn't it, John? Yeah. One of his, one of his heroes. I and um, some weightlifting equipment for him to keep fit. And he said, um, you know, I've been thinking about this. I'm not sure I'm the right person for you. Oh, God, our hearts. <laughs> you know, we just had this lovely tour, and he couldn't be nicer. And all yes, of a sudden, he was, bubble burst. <laughs> yes, yes. He said, you just did a show with um, Spencer Tracy, the Catherine Hepburn host, and that made perfect sense. She'd worked with him. She understood him well. I've never worked with Jimmy. I mean, he's been on the show, but I've, we never really worked together. I, I, I think we need somebody who's worked with him who knows what he's like on the, on the set. He said, um, you need somebody like Cary Grant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he said, you know, I know Cary Grant. Why don't I call him and see if he'll do the show? Joan, Joan. Well, Joan, we were, we were literally, almost, I, would, I would say literally, but we were figuratively picking ourselves up off the floor with this, and, jo- and Joan finally found something to say. I said to him, Johnny, look, the show we did with about Spencer Tracy that Hepburn hosted was obviously unique. We can't replicate that with Jimmy Stewart. We're not going to ask Gloria Stewart to host a show about her husband. And she never worked with him in the movies either. She did some television shows. I said, what's unique about this show is that you represent every man who's ever seen Jimmy Stewart on the screen, only you're lucky enough to have become his friend. And he nodded in agreement, perfectly buying that argument, and then said to me, but let me just call Carrie and see if he'll do it. (laughs) Well, David and I left that house. Having we arrived, arrived on, on a high, high and left on a low. <laughs> Lower than low. We got into the car, and David's first words to me were, I don't know what we're going to do. If, if John rarely did anything on television outside of The Tonight Show, Cary Grant never appeared on television, period. Period. So the likelihood of getting Cary Grant was uh, next to nothing, next to zero. But, but, but even David if he said, said yes. Can you imagine yes. what it would have been like with him on hosting the show? Who would the audience be looking at? It would be a case where our host could overshadow our subject. It was a very, very tricky situation. On top of which, I wondered whether Johnny was in effect testing us. Would he, did he want to see if we would leap at the idea of Cary Grant and therefore weren't so thrilled with the fact that he had said yes himself? After all, while we didn't ever see an egotistical Johnny Carson, we knew there had to be an ego there. And therefore, was he testing us to see if we would be thrilled with the idea of having somebody like Cary Grant replace him? I mean, it was a so mess. That, that, was, that was our mood. We were very down, as you can imagine. Now, let's fast forward to the next morning, Joan. Next morning, we're in our hotel rooms in the Beverly Hilton Hotel, and Johnny called me and said, um... I've called Carrie, and his housekeeper tells me he's out of town for several weeks doing that one-man show he travels around doing at colleges. He won't come on my show or anybody else's show to talk about his career, but he does it at colleges. And so, because he's going to be away all that 
that that long a period. Well, so um, I guess you're stuck with me. Well, I, as you probably can tell, Joe, I don't usually get rendered speechless. <laughs> but I mean, I, I I couldn't believe. I mean, I see. We thought that if Cary Grant said no, Johnny was going to run around contacting all the people he knew until he found somebody that was available and appropriate. And it could have so taken... So he could step weeks. out. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, so he could step out. We were convinced by when we left his house that he basically didn't want to do it. Well, when he said, so, you're stuck with me, with perfect timing, by the way, with the pause after the so, uh, I had to recover a bit, and I said, finally, Johnny, you have no idea how thrilled I am to be so stuck. And he said, just make sure it's okay with Jim. <laughs> Again, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. So I called up Jim's press agent, Jimmy's press agent again, John Strauss, and I said, Johnny has just confirmed that he'll do it. And he just wants to make sure Jimmy's, Jimmy will be happy. He said, I try thrilled. <laughs> you probably could have made a fortune if you'd gotten a nickel every time they each asked, is it okay with the other? Oh, yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> You're not kidding. It went back and forth on the Universal lot. I must have heard from each of them about six times before 12 o'clock noon. Isn't it wonderful of John? If he tells me again how wonderful it is. <laughs> anyway, that's how we got John. I know this is probably a trick question, but I have to ask it. Which of your projects that you did together do each of you look at and say, this is my personal favorite, or can you even answer a question like that? Well, as David, I'm going to quote David. It's, you know, it's, you're asking us to pick a favorite child. Right. I figured that might be the answer. Right. Um, but I think both of us, David, you correct me if I'm wrong, and you can say it again if you want to. I think both of us have to be... If we have to be honest and you put fire under our nails, um, I think the Catherine Hepburn All About Me is unique because it's a self-portrait. Close on its heels is the Jimmy and Johnny. Mm -hmm. But um, they all... It's, it's, very hard. it's very hard to pick. I mean, my other analogy is... is People asking Fred Astaire who's his favorite partner. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, we look. They they are they're all our children. The giving birth to them was very tough, uh, and we were very happy with all our shows. And they're all very special in their own way. There's there's no doubt. Any one show we can talk about and tell you how special it is to us. But I think the Catherine Hepburn All About Me stands out because it it is unique. Uh, and that it's different from all the others. Uh, she is hosting her own, she's talking about her own life. Uh, it's, it's totally her show. It's a one woman show. Uh, and it was also the culmination of all our years of working with her. Uh, so it, it, it has to be a little bit, a little tiny bit more special than the others, which are all very special to us. But Joel, you know, when you realize the kind of shows that we did, First of all, we never did an unauthorized biography of somebody. It was always with them, or if they weren't alive, it was with their families and close friends. And so, therefore, we were doing shows that were not, you know, they were not playing characters in a film the way they, their careers had them doing. We were doing shows that were personal to them and that were their lives. And so, therefore, they're all very special to us. I mean, I, I just want to make that point that... To be, was, to be trusted to do this kind of thing is an honor. It's an and honor. They, and they, we, were, we were totally just... Never once were we asked, what clips are you using? Uh, how are you going to do with this part? Nobody ever asked us that. Nobody ever asked to see what we were doing until the show was finished. And that's kind of astounding when you think they were handing over their lives for us to tell the story. Well, there was trust, and that's like you say. That's that's the most important part. You have to show them that they're trust that you're trustworthy, and they can trust you. Yeah. Once you and got I the first person, then once the first documentary was finished, then at least you could build on that to show people what you did. But I could see how um, getting people to trust you would have been probably the toughest part. Well, also, um, Joe, it was it was. Um, it was a matter of, of 
of letting us tell their life stories the way we wanted to tell the, tell them, even though they were participating in it or their family and friends were. And for them to have given that up and given it over to us to do is really now, now that we think back on it, I, you know, when you're doing it, you're too busy to think about it. It's amazing it's, to me. It sometimes it also puts you in a slightly tricky position. I, I'm thinking of the, the final show, we, the last show we did, which is about Errol Flynn, which uh, Patrice Wymore Flynn, his his widow, cooperated on. And we got very close to Pat. We were, we were, we were very good friends with Pat, really until she, she died quite recently. But then you realize Errol Flynn's life was, was not a walk in the park. There were some very dark sides that, you had to, that we had to deal with. And how now we knew Pat. Could we deal with these dark sides? We didn't want to offend this woman. On the other hand, we couldn't ignore uh, that aspect of Errol Flynn. Uh, but we, so we took the plunge and we just did it as honestly as we possibly could. Well, we what just, we said to that, her very early on, we said, Pat, look, we cannot do a puff piece on Errol Flynn. We'll get lambasted in the press and it won't be a true portrait. She said, do what you want to do. Yes, yes. And, in, and when the show was finished, she said, you really caught him. And she said, what I really like about what you did is you, you dealt with him as an actor, which most people never, never bother with. They don't see that he was a great actor. And actually, Errol Flynn was a terrific actor. But there's so many other aspects to his personality and his life that are that brought to the forefront that people forget about that. What so we tried to us, do a very complete portrait, all the bad stuff and the good stuff. And what she said to us after it was over was perhaps the most meaningful review of all that we got for that show. She said he would have been so proud. Nobody ever took him seriously as an actor before. To this day, it really gets me. It gets me. I get a lump in my throat with that one. Well, then it sounds like uh, you're right. I don't think there's an easy way to pick any perfect, any one of the as your favorite, because I suspect it sounds like each one of them had their own. You, you can hear it in our voices. Can't you? <laughs> that's that's why I sort of asked the question because I wanted to give you one more chance at at the end to sort of say, okay, what what kind of memories came out of doing these? I know obviously it's in the book, but I think hearing it live is not a bad way to give you the opportunity to. And I, I hope, Joel, that even though the book is telling stories about the making of these programs and our associations with the people involved with these programs, and in many cases the continuing relationships with them, I hope we're not betraying trust. I don't think this is a book that betrays them in any way. We just wanted to tell of our experiences in working with them. Right. So even though I think Joan was the one who said it that this was a that the book was your retirement project, what are, <laughs> are what are each of you doing currently? I can't imagine that you're just sitting in the house all day doing nothing. Joan, do you have what what are you doing these days? Well, Anything still related to your previous work? Well, to be honest with Joe, with you Joe, we're exhausted because we've been Jeff our publicist whom I guess you know, Jeff Abraham. <laughs> right. We're exhausted. I mean we're <laughs> we're talking all day long. I kept telling Jeff, send us throat lozenges by the time this is <laughs> I mean so far we're on a still very big schedule. The, I feel like the, we're back in production. Well, yeah, yes. The, the, the book was a learning experience for us because it's, it's very unlike producing a television program, which we've done so many of. Uh, it, but but this, was a, this is a brand new experience for us, a very exciting experience. And it's, as Joan said, it felt a little bit like the, being back in production, but with a very different type, type of product here. We, we've, just had a, we've just had a ball doing this. Uh, so we haven't come down from that yet. When, we, when we've come down, we'll let you know <laughs> if we're going to stay retired or not. <laughs> and, by the way, just let me say for the record, you know, Richard Dreyfus wrote the foreword to the mm -hmm. book. I'll tell you how he did it. I asked him if he'd write a blurb, and he said to me, all right, let me give you some thoughts. He dictated that foreword um, literally to the, way it, to the way you see it now, off, off of the top of his head on the telephone. And I said, I said, Richard, that's unbelievable. And when I read it to David, 
and we read it to our literary agent, he said, that's not a blurb, that's the foreword. So I called Richard, I said, can we use it in the, as the foreword? He said, sure. He's a huge movie buff. Crazy, really cares about the movies and can pinpoint tiny little scenes that you, you even David and I, who know something about movies, not, we're not considered film experts, but he can pick out a scene that you would probably have ignored and just taken as part of the plot. And he can analyze that scene and why it's important. He's quite amazing. We've made some great friendships, as you probably realize, too. Right. Well, I hope, I hope that people seek out the, the special on Turner Classic Movies on April 7th with the five of the documentaries. But just as importantly, and I just hope that they reach out for the book, the book in the Company of Legends, um, by uh, Joan Kramer and David Healy is just a wonderful collection of stories, but also background, and you learn quite a bit about their work and how, you know, being a documentarian for different companies, particularly for PBS and, as you said, TNT, it's a it's a great story all by itself. Even forgetting that the character, the great characters that are part of the story, and I'm really glad you were able to talk to me, and I. I really enjoyed hearing about your great careers, and thank you for joining me. Thank Joel, you thank so you for inviting us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joan and David, and that you take the time to seek out their great documentaries, in addition to their fascinating book. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film. <laughs>